Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for uh, your word, for your church, for this year. Dear Lord, um, I hope that all of us have taken time to reflect um, on our lives. Um, maybe going great. Maybe holidays are really a challenge. But it's a new year, and your uh, word, your message, your really the Easter message, even coming out of Christmas, is about new life. And so I pray that all of us uh, take into account uh, our lives where they are and would always start anew, start fresh uh, as a church, as, as believers, and that you would, uh, you would bless us as we do that. You would open up your word in new and different ways. You would uh, open us up to relationships and and to going, um, to living out the gospel and loving God, loving our neighbor. Jesus' name, amen. If y'all would turn to Matthew uh, chapter 2, I'm going to read a couple verses. Matthew 2, we're going to go verse 1 through 8, very familiar passage. Uh, as Ben saying about the wise men, we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm not just trying to carry on Christmas into middle January. Um, there's, a, there's a method to the madness. So Matthew 2, starting verse 1, says, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? We observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. And stop right there. And if you have uh, your Bibles and if you don't, please take one up there at the corner table. We always give out Bibles. But you could also mark 1 Corinthians chapter one. We're going to read a couple verses there. We'll come to it. Um, the reason I read this passage about the wise men is uh, today is, is known in church history and traditional church as Epiphany. Uh, now, Epiphany is actually uh, not only a Sunday, but it's a season. Uh, honestly, Epiphany goes uh, through the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday. But Epiphany is, it literally means to make manifest say that again, to make manifest. As in, beginning in Epiphany, we are to see if Jesus is manifested in our life. In church history, in church tradition, a lot of times you'll preach on the wise men, you'll teach on the baptism of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. Uh, We are starting a series next week on the Gospel of Mark. We'll see his baptism, we'll see his miracles. But it's really a question. Has Jesus manifested himself in our life? Is he real? Epiphany means we have his birth, and he begins to start becoming like real to people. The wise men, they realize this is the king, the king of all kings, lord of all lords. 
they bow down before him. His baptism, we'll look at next week, when God says, this is my son, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. We have a picture of the Trinity. Jesus is making himself manifested in people's lives in the world. Now then, a lot of folks question the wise men deal. I mean, like, you talk to historians, uh, you watch, you know, the History Channel. I know we got some History Channel. I love that. But, you know, it, it gives interviews with, like, skeptics and, you know, supposed Bible scholars who will say, well, this, this really didn't happen. And, and 50 years ago, a lot of folks who presumed to be, you know, astute intellectual scholars, wise men deal, no way, no way, just couldn't have happened. Star in the sky, no way, could not have happened. So just from a historical vantage point, let me say this is, this is really legit stuff. Um, first off, it's not uncommon that during that time, uh, kings, the birth and the death of kings were marked by uh, like supernatural things in the sky. Um, one thing that happened, I mean, this is historical fact, but it's also very much luck. When Caesar died, the night Caesar died, there was a supernova in the sky. This is, Caesar, this is 44 B.C., Julius Caesar. There was, uh, it's like Ides of March, Cleopatra stuff, something on that. There was a supernova, Shakespeare too. And it was really lucky, but people said, oh, see, he's like a god. He's, he's really the true king. Some people actually said that. Um, there were many prophecies, you know, leading up, both in Scripture, but outside what we think of as Scripture, prophecies of a new king who would be born in Judea. So that was coming up. And then, and this is historical fact, okay, when Jesus was born, there was a, a, an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn so that, you know, it looked like this one gigantic star. The star in the sky. These were, and you know, obviously God orchestrated that. These are historical things that the passage of the wise men, you know, very, very legit. I mean, historically. I know that interests some of you. Some of you are like, I don't need that. But hey, I just wanted to throw that out. Here's the thing, though. Matthew's not a historian. Matthew's not like a Ph.D. scholar. Matthew was, you know, a tax collector, sinner. Jesus changed his life. Why does he allude to this? Why, why does he give us this story? I mean, he's not trying to, like, prove it. You know, it'd be great, and, and I try to do this looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If y'all look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, look at them as preachers. They're really trying to preach a message. This is who Jesus is. So why would Matthew use, you know, this deal, this story? I think, I believe he's saying, the wisdom of the world... Jesus turns it upside down. The wisdom we think is important, Jesus turns it on its head. The gospel turns it upside down. The wisdom of the world. What is that? The wisdom of the world. Let me say this. I am a, uh, I am a sucker for the wisdom of the world. I mean, a lot of times I'll say, man, I'm preaching to myself and y'all get to sit in Today I'm like really preaching to myself. I mean, I always am, but I'm really preaching to myself today because when I say the wisdom of the world, I mean like what the experts say. You know, what the, those who, you know, know it, those who are the experts, those who are the uh, elitists. And I love that stuff. I mean, just to give you an example, last night, okay, I didn't think I was going to say this, but this, God convicted me 
this morning. I was praying through. It's like, just tell them kind of how you live, okay? <laughs> Here it goes. Last night, you know, Saturday night, I'm not preparing for the sermon. I do that Sunday mornings. But I'm reading articles. And I read an article about politics in the Wall Street Journal. And I read an article about politics in the New York Times. And, you know, I, I do that regularly. I'm also not just reading about, like, politics or world affairs. I mean, that's so important. But end of the year, there's all these lists about, you know, best movie lists of 2012, best books of 2012. And I want to be in the know, you know. Hey, I got a little money for Christmas. What books am I going to buy? I love to read. But, you know, I'm reading all these, you know, astute, elite people who obviously know what's best. And I don't know how they know what's best, but they're the expert. They, they have the wisdom. So they'll say, you know, here's the 10 best books of 2012. Here's the movies you need to see before the Oscars. And I used to be even worse. Like, I, you know, movie-wise, man, I, if you were nominated for anything, I was like, I was at that movie. I was making time. You know, thankfully now I just go to like, you know, 8 out of the 10. Anyway, but seriously, I'm like reading through what, what do the wise men and women say? I, lo- I love the show Charlie Rose. Some of y'all may be bored out of your mind about Charlie Rose, but it, he gets the experts, so-called experts, politics, culture, art, sit down at the table, they talk for an hour, and I love that show. And anyway, this is, it's sin in me. You're like, why is that sin? It's sin because there's a desire in me to like want to be in the know. There's a desire in me, like, what do the experts say? Because that's, you know, obviously that they're making the world go round. And it's something, honestly, I struggle with. You're like, no, that's, that's not bad. When you put it above the wisdom of Scripture, and I'm not saying I do that like on purpose, but I catch myself spending more time on that than in God's Word. Some of that stuff can be very good. I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying, you know, bash New York Times or bash Wall Street Journal, you know, whatever slice you find. But I'm saying like when you start putting that over the wisdom of Christ, you know, it becomes an idol. So one of the idols that I battle with, and we all have our idols, is like being in the know, being in the astute, you know, being knowing at least what these elitists think. Okay, now, if that's wisdom, how does that play into Christianity? It's like, what are they, what are the wise of the world? And you're like, well, that's not Jackson, Mississippi. It's coming, and it's, if not already here. What do the wise of the world think of Christianity? Two things. When I also I'm happen to be reading this book on Thomas Jefferson. And I don't know if y'all know this. I mean, Jefferson, great president, all that. But he literally, he took the Bible and um, he cut out verses, entire passages that he didn't agree on. And then that was his Bible. And it's called the Jeffersonian Bible. So, you know, things that he didn't like or he just didn't rationalize, he just cut them out. And that was the Bible he studied. I'm like, I never do that. Some folks do that all the time. We don't dive into passages that are challenging. You know, we'll stick with the, the love and the peace and the joy, all that good stuff. We'll say, hey, let me hit the New Testament, Old Testament, you know, doesn't say anything to me. And I, hey, it's challenging. It's tough. But it's God's Word. As I said uh, last week or two weeks ago, you know, I don't preach a lot out of like Obadiah. I don't know if y'all ever heard me preach. But Obadiah can speak to us just as much as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So maybe I should. I don't know. We'll see. But, you know, what I'm saying is the wisdom of the world will say, you know, the Bible, it's not totally practical and wise for this day and age. Another thing the wisdom of the world would say, I read a letter 
uh, in a journal, in an article by a pastor, um, but it's not of a church, okay? So I hesitate to even call him pastor. Let me say the leader of a Unitarian Universalist church, um, which this denomination, if you want to call them that, I mean, they, they don't believe in the authority of Christ or Scripture. And I'm not, I'm not saying negative things on here. I'm just saying here's what this pastor wrote. This pastor said, you know, all my life I've tried to be tolerant of everyone. But I've decided to be intolerant now of conservative evangelical Christians. And he went on the letter. And this was in some, it was in some religious magazine. I don't know, but I came across it. And he said the reason is, is because, you know, they, they're very exclusive in their thinking. Exclusive their thinking. Obviously, they think I'm going to hell. And, you know, I, I try to talk to them, and there's always this kind of bewilderment in their eyes about, like, how do you believe what you believe? And, you know, there's always kind of a coded message in that they're trying to save me. And he even has a friend who is a conservative evangelical preacher who teaches at a seminary, and he would invite him to come talk to his students as they were, like, learning the Bible and learning about church, but trying to talk to them to, like, you know, well, here's what the other side thinks. And he said he used to do that all the time, but he stopped because the students said they were very graceful, they were very nice, they weren't condemning. But it was this sense underlining of like, you just you ain't got it, brother. You know, you're just, you're lost, brother. You're going to hell, brother. And he said, I kept feeling that over and over again, year after year that I'd go, that I'm, I'm going to stop being tolerant of evangelical conservative Christians. And he wrote, and this is like, you know, went all over internet, Facebook, this letter. Now, that I, I tell you that, I was like, what, what, he, what do you mean by that? What I mean is like the wisdom of the world. That's it. I mean, of, of the world, that's it. The wisdom of the world is if you're good and decent, you're saved. Remember that thought? I'm going to come back to it at the end. Going to leave it for a minute, but if you're good and decent, you're saved. The wisdom of the world is if if you just you know try your best, live a good life, you know that that's all you need. The wisdom of the world would say, find your own path in life. That's that's what it's all about. The wisdom of the world says it it does, and some of y'all know it. That you know really we're on the, the same plane. You know all these all these religions. It's you know the Bible's one of many. Jesus one of many saviors. That is that is what the world thinks as wisdom. And it's growing. It's growing more and more. Because I, I can tell you, what I'm reading in these articles, seeing on shows like Charlie, that's, that's the tone that we get. That's the tone our kids are going to be exposed to as they go off to college and learn and grow. That's, that's it. So contrast to that, and here 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 18. Verse 18, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth that was steeped in like wisdom and philosophy and culture. This was Greece. This is the heyday of the arts and politics and everything. And so the church was in the midst of this. And Paul says, the message of the cross, verse 18, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, 
God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. Paul is writing to very wise culture, people who lift up wisdom. He's saying it's not really wisdom. It's, it's not eternal. It's not going to last. He even says here, he says, you know, where is this great debater? Where is this great writer? Where are these great wise people? He said, God is making their wisdom look foolish. And to them, our wisdom looks foolish. He says, the cross looks foolish. And don't we hear that over and over again? That's foolish. Good people aren't saved. That's foolish. We need saving. That's foolish that it just comes down to the cross. Man, if, I mean, if y'all hadn't hear that, y'all are, y'all are out of time. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I hear that all the time in, in media circles and stuff like that. So what do we do? I mean, what do we do? Wisdom of the world, wisdom of Christ. I just want to share really three thoughts, three points uh, with y'all, and then we'll close up about the wisdom of the world, how it doesn't last. And I know, I know you're like, well, I know that, but I mean, like how it won't last and why we need to be focused on the wisdom of Christ and why we need to be centered on God's word and, and knowing it and learning it and studying it. And yes, loving those who may be opposed to this because that's what his word says. But never put the wisdom of this world above the wisdom of Christ. So, what would I say? Well, three things. The wisdom of the world, and like I said, I battle with this. Man, we battle with it. You may not, you know, read Wall Street Journal, but hey, the wisdom of People Magazine. The wisdom of us, you know, what do the cultural folks, what do the actors and the leaders and the politicians and the people who are in the know and in these big-time circles, what do they say? Because we want to be them. Fame, money, status, looks. What do they got that we don't? Well, the wisdom of the world, three things. I hope to show you this. Wisdom of the world is shallow. That's tough. Okay. Shallow. Wisdom of the world is inadequate. Wisdom of the world is exclusive. First, shallow. Shallow. How did, um, rhetorical question, don't answer. How did Jesus come into the world? Yeah, he's a baby. But like where and how? Bethlehem. A hick, redneck town in the boondocks. It ain't Rome, number one. But it ain't even Ephesus. It ain't even Corinth. It ain't Athens. It's, Be- it's not even Jerusalem. It's Bethlehem. And, and not in like the boutique hotel in Bethlehem. Because they didn't have five-star joints. A stable with like cows and donkeys and smell. Son of God was born. Who worshipped him? Roman Empire? Emperors? Guards? Herod? Herod wanted to kill him. Shepherds. Shepherds, they made their living keeping sheep. These weren't even tradesmen. They spent their night on dirt. And then wise men. We're like, well, we give the wise men all the credit. No. They're from like what, what's like Iran now, Persia. Different racially, culturally. They were smart. But nobody in the in crowd 
It was worshiping baby Jesus. And Jesus was not born in the right spot, and he did not have any of the right trappings. And so I ask you this. The reason I say it's shallow, we got some politicos in this church, which that's great. You know, I try to be a politico, just listen to it. Hey, if you're a campaign manager, and you're trying to get a guy elected, or let's say you get a guy elected, and then let's say the guy becomes president, you're saying, I want to, you know, I want you to be known in history. I want you to be the greatest president. What are you going to do? I think what you're going to do is try to give the trappings that look so good, whether to the electorate or to history, that, that people are just going to fall in love with you. What are those trappings? Well, it's a story. It's branding. And whether you're like born into wealth or, you know, work to wealth, you know, as a campaign manager, like, let's, let's create your story. Let's get your brand and let's make it as, as best as we can. Would any campaign manager choose this story? This branding? No. The trappings we want to have, again, whether we're born with them or somehow we get them on our own merit, hey, money, status, fame, and, you know, hopefully you're like good looks. I mean, that's, that's what the world lifts up. Jesus had none of those. You're like, well, how do you know how he looked? Many folks think he wasn't that great looking of a guy even. Like he was kind of short. I don't know. I've never seen him. But you know, I mean, a lot of folks think he was not even good looking. He didn't have any of that. And so how that speaks to me, honestly, and how I think that should challenge us is that if this is what, how Jesus was born, and, you know, 2,000 years later, every person in the world, I would argue, knows his name, and a quarter of them have given their life over to him, it challenges me on what we hold important in this life. You tracking with me? Like the fame, the money, the status, the looks, that's fleeting. It will pass. We cannot take that with us. In the wisdom of the age or the time of the world now that trying to get that when it won't even last, the only true wisdom is eternal wisdom. And Again, 2,000 years, people know his name. A quarter of all the world have given their lives to him. The dude separated time. You know, how did he do B.C., A.D.? That was Jesus. And the story is, is nothing of wisdom of this world. And, and God used it. And, and he's, he's done so much through him, and he, he will do so much through your life. If we stop... Pursuing the shallowness of what the world calls wisdom and look to the wisdom of Christ. He is eternal. That wisdom is eternal. Shallow. Inadequate. How's the wisdom of the world inadequate? Well, the wisdom of the world, the only thing it can really do. I mean, you you take any of, of smart readings or smart writings or smart people or you know, whether they're philosophers or whether they're, you know, politicos or whether, you know, hey, that's great if that's what you want to do your life with and they can give great advice. But, you know, it really boils down to that you need a Savior. It, the wisdom of the world doesn't tell you how to get that Savior. Let me say that again. All the wisdom of the world, what it basically comes down to is we need saving. Now, a lot of the wisdom would say it's not Jesus that's going to save you. 
It is, hey, it's um, an education that's going to save you. Um, it's, uh, you know, just taking the right path, finding your true self, all of this. None of the wisdom of the world tells you how to get saved except the wisdom of Christ. The wise men. How do they find Bethlehem? They're like the star. It wasn't the star. They found Bethlehem through God's word. Look at this passage again. They quote Micah. They quote scripture. You, Bethlehem. The wisdom of the world will tell all of us we need something for salvation. The wisdom of the world will not tell us how to get it. The wisdom of Christ says you need saving. The wisdom of Christ gives us how to find it. Gives us God's word. Ultimately gives us Jesus. Gives us the cross. But we see that. We know it in God's word. In, uh, in Romans 1, Romans 1, it says, uh, it says, All the world is without excuse that there is a creator. That's so true. We, we know there's a creator. Listen, I've had some spiritual moments like up in the mountains, taking hikes on the beach. We know there's a creator. But those spiritual moments only go so far. Will only take me so far. Will only take you so far. The creator ultimately has to come to us. And I believe first and foremost, he comes to us through and in God's word. Like, doesn't he come to us in relationships? Doesn't he come to us in marriage? Doesn't he come to us in children? Seeing a child born? Yes, again, we can see, man, there's a creator. There's a creator that wants spouses to love one another. There's a creator. We see a child born. There's a creator. If you ever witness someone literally pass on to the next life, to we know there's a creator, but the creator fully and truly come to us. It happens in God's word. It happens in church. Yes, it happens in church, but... Holy Spirit-inspired text. That's why, man, we want you to know God's Word. We want to be a Bible-centered church. We want our small groups Bible-centered. God's Word. Yes, there's a Creator. He has to come to us. We have to seek Him. And Yeah, it's challenging too, but we can start. We can study it, grapple with it. You know, there, there have been studies and studies, wisdom of the world, experts, people who are severely injured, be it a sickness, cancer, survivors, you know, lose their leg, whatever it is. But just generally, like severe injuries, close to death type stuff, that more people who are Christian, who have faith, survive. Obviously all of them don't, but I mean literally wise expert studies. They're like, this is puzzling. How does this happen? We know, those of y'all, some of y'all experienced it, how it happens. Both faith, trust, looking into God's word, taking solace from scripture. We, we get that. And it, it overcomes some things. And if it doesn't on this earth, it overcomes everything in glory. The wisdom of the world tells us we need saving. It will not give us directions how God's word will. Last Shallow, inadequate, it's exclusive. And you know, the wisdom of the world calls us exclusive, those of us who call ourselves Christians, calls the church exclusive, calls those who would say, you know, there's, there's only one way to Jesus, that we're exclusive. But really the opposite is true. It's the wise of the world who are exclusive. It is the elitists of the world who are exclusive. They're elite. It is those who know who look down at all of those of us who don't know. You're like, what do I mean? Well, man, first off, like, I ain't got the brain power to be an expert in anything. 
And some of y'all might, but I know I, I don't. And, you know, I definitely don't like have some of the other trappings that you would need. Not just intellect, but, you know, I don't know, status or money or fame. or You know, I don't, we don't have that. So I'm not, I'm not going to get in that circle. And, and you know, they're not going to let me in. And they're probably not going to let a lot of you in. And the experts, the wise, the elitists, very exclusive. The gospel is for everyone. I know you're like, I know that. Look again who he uses. Mary, 15 years old. Girl, poor. Joseph. Shepherds. Wise men. Nobody in the in crowd. The birth of Jesus said, man, the gospel is for everyone. The wise. The common man. The woman. The little girl. It's for everyone. It's not exclusive at all. I, uh, I did have the opportunity before ministry to work in, in Washington, D.C. a couple years. And uh, so I was, man, low, low, low totem pole, you know. So nothing to brag about. But me and some buddies, we would have, we coined this saying when we'd meet folks who are kind of up on the totem pole. We call it big leaguing. Big leaguing. Like, you just got big leagued. And um, well, I laugh at it now. And, and some of y'all have gotten big league before. And people big league all the time. You don't have to be like in Washington or New York. It's like when, you know, there's the attitude like, hey, I'm in the major leagues. You're in A-ball, so stay there. You know, y'all, y'all ever felt that? Big leaguers? They're everywhere. They're exclusive. There's no big league in the gospel. God's not a big leaguer. He's not, you're at A-ball now. Just stay down there. Double A. You're coming up. He's like, come on in. Come on in let's play ball. Open to everybody. The gospel's not exclusive. It's not. And if, if you think it is, if, if there's the trappings of, well, I've got to do this, this, and this, and so I can't make that, I can't be like that, that's not the gospel. It's like, this is how I've lived. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to be a leader for Christ. That's not it. I can't do that. It doesn't matter what we've done. That's the gospel. Jesus has done it. Jesus has done it in his life in his birth, in how he lived, ultimately in his death, in his resurrection, paying for us, stepping in for us, overcoming for us, what we can't do. It's not exclusive at all. Wisdom of the world is. Last thing, simple story. Why? It, it is tough. I mean, I, again, I'm preaching to me. It is tough saying, I don't want the wisdom of the world, wisdom of Christ, because we're inundated with it everywhere. We've got to say that's not going to last. That is not eternal. That will not help. And it really won't help. Story of a guy, French guy, his name Emile Callier. I don't even know if I pronounced it right. Um, read the story in a book, Tim Keller. It's actually the book's out here, uh, King's Cross. You should buy it um, or get it. Emile Callier, he is professor of philosophy at Princeton Seminary. Not Princeton College. Princeton Seminary, so training ministers, but they have a philosophy department. And the thing was, he wasn't a Christian growing up. He was an agnostic. And he grew up in France uh, before World War I. Grew up an agnostic. You know, all religions are kind of equal. One God. Never seen a Bible, but believed in some type of all-powerful being. And he thought that could sustain him. And he's a very smart guy. 
Um, so he went to college, and he wanted to be a professor of something. Um, and then World War I hit. And he said, all my education and all the books that I'd read and all the time I'd thought could not prepare me for the simple instance of my friend in the trench beside me talking about his mom and then getting shot and dying in my face. And then soon after, he was shot, severely wounded. Uh, he recovered. So the war, World War I, affected him. And he said, well, there's got to be more than this. And so he said, I, I decided to write a book. And he said, he called this book, this is the book that will understand me. And really what he did was he would, if there was a phrase or a sentence or something that he read elsewhere, be it a newspaper, be it another book, he would write it down in his journal. He was simply journaling. And he said, I can always pick up this book. And, you know, maybe it's happy phrases or maybe it's, you know, power of positive thinking type stuff. Or maybe it's, you know, belief. I don't know what it was. But he was like, this is what I will use because I'll remember the quotes. I'll remember the wisdom. And it will sustain me. And it filled up. And he recovered. And then one day he said he opened it up. He was outside, maybe under a tree or something. It's in France, pretty, you know. And he started reading it, and he said it did nothing. It actually hurt him because all he did was it, he remembered the times where he read it, and some of those were bad times, and so it left him empty. And that exact moment, he says, or close right after it, his wife comes up with her new baby child, and a minister has just given her a Bible. And he began reading that book. And he read it long into the night. And he said, finally, a book that understands me. And he gave his life to Christ. And now, or well, I think he's passed on, gone to glory. But he was professor of philosophy at Princeton Seminary. Gave up the wisdom of the age for the wisdom of Christ. Now, we could say, and I, I don't have to deal with that. I know Christ and all that. I didn't grow up an agnostic. Many of us did not grow up as agnostics in Mississippi or in Jackson. Many of us grew up in Sunday school. Here's the last question. Think about it, please. Make your new year about this. Many of us grew up knowing the word of the Lord, the Bible. Some of you know it so well. Some of you study it. Do you know the Lord of the word? Let me say it again. Do you know the Lord of the word? Do you know there's nothing about him that's shallow, that he is totally adequate for any life here, that he is wide open, say, come in, partake, it's me, I'm here to save, I'm here to love, I'm here to make your life the life you never imagined, never dreamed. That is the wisdom of Christ, that is eternal wisdom, that is what will last, may we know it, may we live it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are, uh, we are inundated and trapped and surrounded by wisdom that's not eternal. I pray for myself, for the people here, whatever it is we look to, may we either stop and just put that down. May we change some habits. May we grow into a desire, a curiosity, and a love for your wisdom found in your word and centered in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And may that then pour out of us into a church family, into others who aren't here, 
into broken relationships. What does that look like? It looks like forgiving and loving and praying and worshiping and studying. May we have that wisdom. It is there for the taking. May we begin this new year by grasping it and never letting go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.